The Inflation Reduction Act is also the most significant investment ever in climate change. The fight against climate change is a must, a must for our planet, a must for our economic prosperity, and a must for our strategic independence. We are competitive. We need competition. In February 2023, the European Commission presented a Green Deal industrial plan to boost the competitiveness of Europe's net-zero industry and accelerate the transition towards climate neutrality. One of the key objectives of this plan is to position the EU as a global leader in the race for the development of clean tech. However, the Green Deal Industrial Plan came in after US legislators passed the Inflation Reduction Act in 2022. And meanwhile, China has also demonstrated its capacity to advance in clean tech. Today on the Bowl Europe podcast, taking stock of EU's actions in the global race for clean tech leadership. What else needs to be on the agenda to achieve a 100% renewable Europe? Hi, my name is Gail Rago, and I'm your host for this episode of the Bowl Europe podcast. To uncover this complex and fascinating topic, our guests today are Susanna Karp and Thomas Pellerin-Carlin. Susanna Karp is a senior European climate and energy policy specialist, supporting Cleantech for Europe as deputy executive director. She comes from an NGO and parliamentarian background and has formed and led successful coalitions and campaigns, in particular around the EU ETS the EU climate law, the electricity market design, and CBAM. Thomas Pellerin-Cachlin works at the Institute for Climate Economics, I4CE, leading the Institute's EU program. Thomas also teaches at Science Po in Paris and at the College of Europe Energy Union training program in Bruges. Susanna and Thomas, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks a lot for having me on the podcast. Thank you. Susanna, let's start with you. Could you please lay the foundation for this discussion? As there are a lot of buzzwords in the field of green policy debates and discussions, I'd like to start by asking you to explain the basics first. What is clean tech? And secondarily, why does it matter in the current decade of green-focused policy development? And even if it sounds basic, could you help us understand what the relationship is between clean tech and the shift towards the adoption of renewable energy. So clean tech refers to the technologies that are needed to mitigate the greenhouse gas emissions that unfortunately we keep putting into the atmosphere. At the same time, clean tech also refers to the technologies that help us adapt to the already changing climate because unfortunately climate change is happening in real time and we can see the impact of it. Now, another important aspect of clean tech refers to technologies that allow us to minimize our use of resources. So in a sense, it's also technologies that move us beyond the linear economic model towards a more circular one. But of course, this third objective is very much in line with the first two. This is the challenge we're faced with in this century. We have to profoundly transform our technological landscape in the 21st century away from 
technologies that keep emitting greenhouse gas emissions. This decade is basically the one where we can still do something about this, according to all the scientific reports and also the commitments of the countries that have ratified the Paris Agreement. We were meant to be on track for, you know, peaking our emissions. And also 2025 is seen as kind of like the limit by which investment signals and investment decisions had to have happened (laughs) so that we can actually realistically hope to reach uh, net zero carbon neutrality by the second half of the century. Now, it's all quite close. And while there are some encouraging um, signs out there, there's also very many reasons to believe we won't make this timeline. Thanks so much for setting the scene, Susanna. I just wanted to reiterate if you could help us understand what the relationship is between clean tech and the shift towards the adoption of renewable energy as well. Indeed, renewable energies are part of clean tech and they enable the development of a system that allows more clean tech to come. So what I mean by that is a renewable powered electricity system that will require a lot of additional technologies, such as grid technologies. It opens up the gateway to many other categories of clean tech as well. And then even within the field of renewable energies, of course, you've got the renewable energies that we've already seen, you know, the cost revolution happening in the sector when it comes to onshore solar. And now we're seeing fantastic developments on costs when it comes to offshore wind. But sure enough, there are also other categories of renewable energies that need to be helped to reach this point whereby the costs start decreasing rapidly. For example, you've got a wave uh, energy and other offshore technologies that are not yet close to being kind of commercialized. At the same time, we see some of the technologies maturing and then completely new ones coming to be commercialized and hopefully one day matured. So it's an extremely exciting part of clean tech. Toma, on to you. In a bit of a didactical phase of this podcast, I'd like to ask you to help us look beyond the EU, meaning is it correct to talk about a global race for the development of clean tech? And if so, can you help us understand what the milestones or turning points of this race have been? The first change happened in 2015 with the adoption of the Paris Climate Agreement that for the first time sets an objective of reaching climate neutrality. And climate neutrality means that you reduce greenhouse gas emissions so much that what you still emit, you're able to compensate it with um, natural or technological solutions. So that was the first element. And then we saw several economies from 2019 onwards setting a climate neutrality objective for themselves. It was the UK and the European Union who led the charge in 2019, saying we're going to go for climate neutrality by 2050. Some countries were even bolder. Finland, for instance, is aiming for climate neutrality by 2035. And then came the election of Joe Biden in the U.S. and also, you know, climate policy in China. So for the U.S., it's aiming at carbon neutrality by 2050. And for China, it's aiming at carbon neutrality by 2060. And if you pile that up and you add Japan and India and others and Korea, you essentially have 80% of the global economy that is happening in territories that aim for climate neutrality and aim to reach it in 25 to 35 years. So that was a drastic shift. And this led in both the US and China in a perception that this was not only an issue of climate, but also an issue of geopolitics. Who would be controlling the technologies of climate neutrality, those clean techs, those heat pumps and batteries and electrolyzers? And the Chinese had a good head start because they started to invest in those kind of technologies for the last 20 years almost. In the US, 
there was a massive reaction, especially in 2022, with the adoption of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a massive public investment program that will channel between 400 and 1200 billion US dollars for clean tech and renewable energy. And that's in the US context is really seen not only as a climate agenda, but also as an agenda of the kind of, let's say, technological rivalry between the US and China. Thanks for that very helpful global overview, Thomas. So earlier this year in February 2023, the European Commission proposed the EU Green Deal Industrial Plan. To what extent is this new piece of policy impacting the development of clean tech? Susanna, let's start with you. So the Green Deal Industrial Plan comprises of several pieces of legislation which are meant to act in sync with each other. But the sort of critical pillar is the Net Zero Industry Act. It forms a package with the Critical Raw Materials Act and also electricity market design. So indeed, the kind of industrial transformation that we've been talking about also as part of the EU Green Deal requires that we change the way that we're using electricity. We will be using much, much more electricity as we electrify many sectors, including transport and buildings. But at the same time, there's also new industries developing and the net zero industries require to have kind of the gateway open so they can actually enter the market. And as it stands, the space for innovators to actually come in and, uh, you know, kind of produce at commercial scale those breakthrough technologies that will be needed for us to move towards a net zero economy, they don't have this easy access. And in fact, they struggle quite a lot. They struggle inside the European Union as well as outside of it. But what we're seeing outside of the European Union is that both the United States and China have made very strong commitments to accelerate these technologies in this decade. And so, the European Union has decided to take this responsibility and therefore offer European innovators a chance to commercialize and scale up in Europe to, of course, the benefit, the long-term benefit of all Europeans, because by maintaining competitiveness at the global level and by lowering the cost of these technologies now, we're just making the transition cheaper for Europeans. So the Green Deal Industrial Plan is actually a complement to the EU Green Deal. What is your take on the GDIP, Thomas? Is it a step ahead in the development of a European clean tech investment plan, which you have called for in a recent policy brief published by the Institute for Climate Economics? Yeah, I think it is. So the approach of the European Commission when it comes to the Green Deal Industrial Plan is to have an eager response to the Inflation Reduction Act. And that response is officially based on four pillars, regulation, investment, skills and trade. But it's really the investment response that is the most lacking in the European Union and the one that is the most comparable with the Inflation Reduction Act in the US. And this is happening at an interesting moment in EU politics. We're in 2023 and in one year, they're going to be the European elections. And so that happens every five years and politicians are looking for ideas. What are going to be the big topics? And typically in Europe, climate change or rather climate action is a big topic. And now if you want to be taken seriously as a politician in Europe, you need to have a climate agenda. It could be a left-wing agenda or conservative agenda or liberal agenda as you want, but you need to have a version of a climate agenda. And investment is an interesting one because it's something that everybody can rally around, but tweak it in a way that you know, adds a little political flavor if you want. Before we move on with the interview, let's recall some key concepts 
to understand clearly the EU's role in the global race for cleantech leadership. We mentioned that cleantech refers to those technologies needed to reduce our environmental impact, but also the ones that allow us to adapt to climate change. In a world where 80% of the global economies have committed to becoming climate neutral in 25 to 35 years, policies and actions towards a greener future have entered the geopolitical arena. In this context, we have learned that China was the early bird investing in clean tech for the last two decades, but also the US has been at the forefront, especially with the adoption of the Inflation Reduction Act, a massive investment program to boost clean tech and renewable energy. The European Union made its move at the beginning of 2023 when it approved the Green Deal Industrial Plan. The question remains, is this enough? So in the second part of the podcast, I'd like to have a discussion on a few topics that can help us move beyond the current policy setting in the EU. As we have also understood from Susanna's intervention, cleantech is a key industry in the move towards a climate-neutral continent and therefore towards a system based 100% on renewable resources. At the same time, it needs investment, as Thomas mentioned. So a couple of questions for you at this stage. Which clean tech sector should the EU and its member states prioritize for public spending and why? And beyond that, how can we ensure that sufficient resources for a 100% renewable European economy are available? Yeah, so I think the sectors proposed in the Net Zero Industry Act make a lot of sense. Obviously, we'll have to revise every five years, every seven years, a list of sectors that need this kind of support for innovators to access the market and be able to commercialize and scale up in Europe. So for the time being, I think it makes sense that indeed we focus on the development of renewable energy as well as grid technologies, heat pumps and geothermal energy and electrolyzers. So effectively, the sectors that have been identified by the European Commission. What matters in this calculation is, of course, where technologies are on their technology readiness level, but at the same time, kind of where we are in terms of securing our competitiveness on the global markets is also an important aspect of this discussion. Thomas? When it comes to prioritization at the EU level, we don't really need to prioritize because we are big enough to do pretty much everything when it comes to clean tech sectors. The question is rather, what is your level of expectation per sector? And here, it's good to start by looking at where we are today and where we want to go. If we look at wind power systems, which is a critical clean tech for the world, Europe is already leading. Europe is the leader in wind power alongside China. And here we can say we are already the leader. We want to consolidate our lead. And so there you can prioritize with a view of staying number one. You have a second set of technologies where you're not leading yet, but you want to lead and you have a good chance of being a leader at some point. That would be an example would be batteries. And in Europe, it would make a ton of sense for Europe to produce a lot of batteries on EU soil, also to produce the greenest batteries in the world. And here the idea is, okay, how can you scale up the existing battery manufacturing that is there? It's pretty small, but it is there. And you can scale it up and be as competitive as the US or China, for instance. You won't be number one, but you can be a close second or a close third. And that makes sense economically and also geopolitically. And then you've got the third category of clean techs, which are the ones where you're not leading and you know you will never be a leader, but you think it still makes sense from a security of supply, from a geopolitical perspective. 
And here the case in point is solar PV, solar photovoltaic panels, which is a market that is over-dominated by China, where the US is putting a lot of public money with the Inflation Reduction Act. And there is no way, at least in the short term, that we Europeans are going to be a leader in that market. But we can say, hey, let's try to make sure that at least we produce 40% or 20% of the solar panels that we install in Europe. Because we want to be able to do this, so we want to have a base on which we can scale up if we become competitive in the far future. But also if, you know, the geopolitics of the old US-China relations go south, you know, it's good to have a plan B. And that plan B needs to be planned ahead. Speaking one year after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, we saw what happens when you over-depend on a country. Nevertheless, Europe seems to, or Europe will continue to, import energy also in a 100% renewable system. And that will be true for renewable gases, but also increasingly for electricity. Would you agree with this interpretation? What's your take, Susanna? I think it's premature at this stage to come up with a conclusion already. In terms of importing electricity, it's a plausible conclusion to reach just because as we're electrifying more and more and more sectors, we will need more electricity. Now, at the same time, with clean tech, so as I've described it earlier, you can also reduce the amount of electricity that you use. So at this point in time, I mean, we can only import electricity from countries in our vicinity. And so therefore, I mean, indeed... Um, when it comes to the Mediterranean basin, we could develop extremely long cables <laughs> that allow you to get electricity that's made elsewhere. So maybe that is a plausible scenario, but it's not that our options are unlimited when it comes to importing electricity. So in that sense, let's assume that most of the electricity will be produced in Europe and then we will indeed connect to our neighbors for occasional instances where we'll, we'll need to import more. But let's see how this develops. What about you, Toma? Actually, I strongly disagree with that interpretation. We've become used to relying on foreign imports of energy. And it's important to understand how this started. When the energy system in Europe was created 100 years ago, or at least the one we had 100 years ago, everything was controlled by Europeans. And also because it was the time of colonial empires. And therefore, a lot of the world, like Iraq and Iran, for instance, were under direct or indirect European rule. And as Europeans lost the wars of decolonization, they started to steal import energy from the same places. But those places were now independent countries who obviously had their own geopolitical agenda. So in a way, the idea that we need to import energy is a colonial legacy. And it's a choice. The only thing where we're certain that we will remain dependent is not on energy per se, when this is an open choice, but on raw materials. If we're talking about lithium, for instance, which is a key material for batteries, when it comes to lithium, even if we can mine lithium in Europe and recycle it, a lot of it will come from abroad. And here we can choose which partners we pick. For lithium, for instance, there's lithium in China, but also in Australia, Argentina, in Chile. And we can work with some of those countries. For instance, for Europeans, it would make a ton of sense to work with Argentina and Chile to establish partnership with those democracies and make sure that we can have closer ties economically, but also geopolitically, because it makes sense for both Argentina and Chile to work with the Europeans, because if there is tension between the US and China, Argentina and Chile will suffer from that tension and could still rely on the European market for a lot of their trade. And here it's really the idea to build win-win partnerships 
Last but not least, another key challenge for Europe is to stay true to its green ambitions in the management of imports and trade. I'm thinking in particular here of raw materials and intermediate products in photovoltaic module production. So how can Europe act sustainably in this domain? And more generally, how can it foster sustainable partnerships with third countries on its external energy, trade and resource policies? Susanna, would you like to go first? Sure, I'd love to because I have the opportunity, therefore, to refer to the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is a huge policy innovation that the EU has brought to the world, which is indeed putting a carbon price on our imports. That means we're taking full responsibility for the carbon footprint of what we consume in Europe. It's no longer enough to say, well, we're only responsible for 9% of greenhouse gas emissions globally. Through our imports, our carbon footprint is much higher than that. And so with the carbon border adjustment mechanism, we've already taken a significant step towards creating a landscape that allows for more sustainable trading practices. And now the question is, how do we apply that same logic to other sectors? So for example, one way of doing it is there's been a lot of talk of this Critical Raw Materials Act uh, club. So the, the act creates a club for critical raw materials. And you know, a club, it's mostly exclusionary. However, it can become an inclusive concept. If, for example, we develop a social taxonomy of rights that goes to underpin that so that we only import from partners that actually share a commitment to implementing human rights in their practices, or that there's a taxonomy that looks into labor law and practices around extraction uh, mining would be like a social CBAM for critical raw materials, if you like. But it's one thing where the EU could indeed act, and I think it would be important for it to act. I think that's a critical question for the future of Europe's place in the world. I think we still suffer a lot from a mentality that focuses on the past and the present. But here we're talking about building relationships for the future. And so just for a second, let's do a little bit of foresight. Let's say, you know, what's going to be the world in 2050? We don't know exactly, but one thing we know for sure is that oil and gas countries will be less relevant in 2050 than they are today. So maybe we don't need to compromise so much with countries like Saudi Arabia, to name just one example. Places that produce cobalt and lithium would be absolutely critical. Some of them still well-functioning states like Chile and Argentina and Australia, and we can build partnerships there already. And others are states that face a lot of challenges like the Democratic Republic of Congo. But that would also make sense to invest there. And by investment, I not only mean money, but also invest in human relationships. One example of in practice, you know, what would that look like is, can you create a kind of Erasmus program with those countries? Can we design something that allows thousands of Chileans and Congolese to come in Europe without all the administrative nightmare that immigrants have to go to? We create a super fast track. We welcome them in our universities so they can learn engineering, but also law, economics, you know, all those kind of skills that are super important when you want to build a business. And then, I mean, they're free to do, they can stay in Europe and work in Europe sometime if they want, they can come back to the country. And do, or we, do we also do the reverse? Like we send European students to study in Congo, in Chile, to learn about those countries, their culture, their history, their way of seeing the world. If we do that, it won't change the world right now, but it will mean that in 10 years, we will have thousands of Congolese and Chileans who know Europe, know how we are, how we function, what are our biases. That would be 
a great terrain to have a very intense and deep cooperation, not only between states, but really between civil societies and nations. Susanna, Tama, thanks so much again for joining us on the podcast on this fascinating discussion about clean tech and the developments of a 100% renewable Europe. I hope that all of this future visioning that we've done today actually comes to fruition and that we have a cleaner future to look forward to in Europe and the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. And that was it for episode eight of the Bull Europe podcast, the podcast of the European Union office of the Heinrich Bull Stiftung in Brussels. As usual, we invite you to visit our website at eu.bull.org or eu.boell.org. Before we go, we also wanted to share with you the resources that inspired today's episode. Go and visit the Institute for Climate Economics at www.i4ce.org. You can find Thomas' policy brief under the title Think House, Not Brick, Building an EU Clean Tech Investment Plan to Match the US Inflation Reduction Act. As for Cleantech for Europe, you can check their website at www.cleantechforeurope.com and subscribe to their monthly updates. The April edition goes with the title The EU Green Deal Industrial Plan. And that's it for today. Until the next episode, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.